Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles now to uh, Job, the book of Job, as we are doing a sermon series to the book of Job, and uh, we're in the section of chapters 4 and 5, which is Eliphaz's first speech, and uh, we've worked our way through chapter 5, verse 7. We have the remainder of chapter 5 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading at chapter 5, verse 8. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. The old blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the almighty. For he wounds but he binds up. He shatters but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field. and The beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace. And you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. Imagine that you are in my shoes as a pastor and a Middle-aged Christian woman comes to you with the following concern. She relates to you how one morning about a year ago before our conversation, her husband went outside to do chores. At some point, she realized it had been a while since he had reported back, and so she went outside to check on him, and she found him collapsed on the ground, dead. Doctors later stated that as best as they could determine, he had died of a sudden cardiac arrest. His heart had just stopped beating, and they believed that he was there working one moment, and in the next he must have blacked out, collapsed to the ground, and died within seconds. While it was apparent that this Christian widow still greatly grieved the loss of her husband of many years, she wasn't seeking me out for comfort about that. She knew her husband was in heaven, and she had come to terms with all of that. What was particularly disturbing to her and why she was seeking me out was because of what a fellow church member had told her soon after this traumatic event. The church member told the widow that what had happened was because of some sin in her life. This poor lady was now asking me if that was true. And she described how she knew she sinned every day, but she hadn't been able to figure out what particular, what heinous sin had led to the death of her husband. 
And she had obviously taken the rebuke to heart and was distraught by it. She didn't know what to do. But before I tell you what I told her, I would ask you, what would you have told her if she had come to you as a fellow Christian seeking advice and counsel? Well, what I told her is that this individual should not have told her any such thing. It was wrong to have judged her and her husband. If you think about it, she really judged both. Um, It was wrong to have judged her and her husband and to have acted as judge and jury and made a determination that God was punishing her and him for some sin. While I didn't talk about it, at that time it should be noted that um, if you're going to say that she was being disciplined for sin, well, what about her husband? Was he killed for her sin? That hardly seems just. But what I did explain to this grieving widow is that what this parishioner said to her was the kind of sinful judging that Jesus condemns in Matthew 7 when he says, do not judge. I also went on to explain that if the Lord had struck her husband down as an act of discipline to lead her to repentance for some particular sin, she would not be left in the dark about what that sin is. And I was able to say that because it was clear to me that she was humbly seeking to know what sin she had committed certainly possible for a judgment to come from God for a particular sin and for a person to be oblivious to what sin they committed if they have a proud and hard heart. And God sometimes does send a chastening trial to lead a person to repentance. Sometimes that person may not realize what the Lord is communicating, but the Lord is not going to leave the contrite sinner who wants to repent and to be right with him in the dark about what sin is broken fellowship. The purpose of chastening is to lovingly lead the child of God to repentance. The purpose is not to leave the sinner wondering what he did wrong and what bad thing is going to happen next until he finally figures it out. And I told this widow, if you've examined your heart and your life and you're you're examining yourself for sin and you're praying about it and you're reading scripture with an open mind and yet you cannot for the life of you figure out what you did wrong to deserve such a thing, then you can be sure this trial is not discipline. She had been humbly evaluating her situation. I could sense she was relieved to finally hear that she wasn't responsible for her husband's death. Applying this scenario now to Job and his situation, Job and his friends asked basically the same question. Is Job suffering because of some sin or some sins that he's committed? Let's get to the the nitty-gritty. Were his possessions stolen? Were his children killed? Because God was displeased with something Job had done and he needed to repent. Essentially, the question over which Job and his friends wrestled was whether Job had sinned and was responsible for these disasters that had taken place in his life. If so, then things are not going to get better for him until he repents and gets right with God. But if not, then what is happening? Why would such things be allowed by God to happen? What is the purpose? And as far as Job's friends are concerned, there doesn't seem to be any possibility but sin to account for what Job has experienced. This view sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel of today, which is really no gospel at all. Prosperity gospel so prevalent today says that God doesn't want his people to ever suffer. He doesn't want you, we are told, to struggle financially. He wants you to have good health. He wants you to have a life that's nothing but a bed of roses. And while this is what he wants, we're told, what prevents this from happening is us. 
All of the problems that we have, they're our own fault, whether the cause is our sin or a lack of faith or some deficiency on our part, which leaves us responsible then for the hardships in our lives, with God standing ready to bless us as soon as we will start doing the right things. This means that when things go wrong, as we would see it, we should be thinking that if only I had done such and such differently, then life would be going well. If only I had followed the Lord's directions. If only I had done more of of, of such and such and less of this and that. If only, if only, if only I would trust the Lord more. And you can see that in this system of belief, life, rather than being lived in the joy of the Lord, becomes dominated by vain regrets of what I should have done or shouldn't have done, or just plain confusion about what should have been done differently. But for sure, the prosperity gospel teaches me that if only I had done things differently, I wouldn't be going through this hard time. And the prosperity gospel is really works righteousness dressed up in new garb. It's the old false teaching that says my relationship with God is determined by my good works or lack thereof. It's also a denial of God's sovereignty to say that God wants to do something. He wants to bless us, but what you and I do prevents him from carrying out his will. The Bible of, uh, the God of the Bible does all his holy will. And his will is not that the lives of his people, including ours, be free of suffering. That is not his will. His will is for us one day to be set free from all suffering, Yes, the day is coming when there will be no more mourning and crying and pain and death will be no more. But now in this life, a life dominated by nothing but prosperity, uh, for now, that, that's not his will. Um, if it was God's will that Job experienced nothing but prosperity, God would not have allowed Job's faith to be tested through Satan's attacks. While Eliphaz has a view of life and religion similar to today's prosperity gospel, he seems to have a view that is closer to the truth. Eliphaz seems willing to acknowledge that in a certain sense it's not abnormal for believers to suffer in this life. He does not agree with the view of the prosperity gospel that any and all suffering can be avoided. And I base this understanding of Eliphaz on what I've been calling his his first two sermons that we took in last week, uh, first sermon being chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and uh, then second sermon, chapter 4, verses 12 through 5, verse 7. And uh, in these verses, Eliphaz acknowledges that Job fears God and that he's a man of integrity, or at least allows for that possibility. And apparently, Eliphaz doesn't struggle to reconcile what has happened to Job with his relationship with God. It sounds like how Eliphaz reconciles the apparent disparity between Job's integrity and what has happened to him is the belief that God is just going to soon reverse things for Job, if he is, in fact, a good man. It is the wicked, Eliphaz says, who perish and who are cut off, words that speak of unrelenting hardship that never turns around. But since Job has been able to help other believers who are suffering as Eliphaz reminds him, then it must be possible for a believer to have weak hands and to stumble and to have feeble knees. Uh, Eliphaz says Job has done, he's helped people who are like that, believers who are like that. Job had in the past helped to comfort struggling fellow believers. 
Eliphaz, in fact, tells Job that he's wrong to be impatient and dismayed now that hard times have come to him. And we find the same willingness to say believers can expect to suffer in that next section of chapter 4, verse 12 through 5, 7. Eliphaz reminds Job that no one's perfect, and so we are to expect suffering. And so Eliphaz has no real issue with believers suffering. Unlike the prosperity gospel proponents of today, Eliphaz doesn't expect believers to never suffer. But while he is willing to accept believers suffering from time to time, what he does not accept is the idea that believers who are right with God will continue to suffer in any kind of ongoing way. Eliphaz believes things are going to turn around for for the believer in this life and soon. God does not allow, according to Eliphaz, repenting godly believers to perish in their suffering. After all, afflictions do not come from the dust, he says. They come from man's sin. They come because man deserves them. Which means that if man is right with God, then he's not going to have these troubles. So, what should man do who is imperfect? Eliphaz presents the answer in what I'm calling his third sermon in chapter 5, verses 8 through 16, where he tells Job to seek God and to commit his cause to God. Verse 8, as for me, I would seek God. He's saying, if I were you, Job, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. He then describes God's attributes, especially in how he takes care of the lowly and the needy who are facing injustice. And essentially, Eliphaz is telling Job to trust God to take care of him. Trust God, Job, to reverse these misfortunes that have happened to you. And to inspire trust in God, Eliphaz describes then our wonderful God for Job to consider. According to verse 10, he is the God who brings the life-giving rains that, that cause crops to grow, where in this, Eliphaz is reminding Job that God is the source of all good things. He's a God of blessing. He's a God of prosperity. When the earth gives of its bounty to us, us who are these poor dust creatures, when the earth gives of its bounty to us, this is God extending his goodness to us. He is the one who can restore us to good things. According to verse 11 and following, God is also good in another way. He is a God of justice who takes care of the victims of oppression There are those who are wise in the ways of the world, and they use their ingenuity to take advantage of others. There are these crafty, wily people who are busy scheming how to get rich, how to get away with their wickedness, plotting how to cheat, how to steal, how to get away with it all. And they use their wealth and their power and their influence to unjustly take the wealth of others, plunging their victims into ruin. And so the result is that there are these lowly and mourning and needy and poor people who are victims of injustice and who have nowhere to turn. But Eliphaz insists God is a God who reverses all of this. He sets on high those who are lowly. He lifts the mourning to safety. He saves the needy. He gives hope to the poor. He puts an end to the injustice. And he does this by frustrating the devices of the crafty. He knows what these crafty, wily people are doing, and he brings their schemes to an end. He brings judgment, he brings disasters upon them, and prevents them from being successful in their wicked plans. Notice how, once again, Eliphaz is willing to say that the righteous suffer. 
For victims of injustice to be restored, their misfortunes reversed, means that for a time they were struggling. Eliphaz doesn't say that if your righteous life is always going to be easy and trouble-free. He admits there is wickedness in this world. There are real struggles. But, and this is Eliphaz's main point, God reverses these misfortunes for his people. And when people suffer unjustly, God shows himself to be on their side. And the wicked, meanwhile, are going to get what is coming. And we are reminded of what was said in the first sermon in chapter 4, verse 7, the words of Eliphaz, Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Eliphaz's message is that the sun is going to come out tomorrow. And now we are told how and why. Eliphaz wants Job to gain comfort from the belief that God in this life reverses all injustices that take place because God is that kind of God. He reverses the misfortunes of those who are the victims of injustice as long as you show yourself to be a person who trusts God by seeking him and committing your cause to him. And Eliphaz has pointed out in verse 9 that our God who does great and marvelous things um, he does things that are unsearchable. That's the word that's used here, unsearchable. Verse 9, who does great things and unsearchable. And um, this means that we can't fully understand his ways. While we can acknowledge the nature of the things that he does as great and marvelous, we can't fully understand him or we cannot comprehend why he does what he does. This view of God is contradicted by the wise of this world who think they can understand this world and, and it's God more than they actually do. Paul quotes Job 5.13. We're told by Bible scholars that this is actually, uh, Job 5.13 is the only verse of Job that's quoted directly in the New Testament. And uh, uh, Paul quotes this in uh, 1 Corinthians 3.19. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And Paul is contrasting in, uh, there in 1 Corinthians the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the world that thinks that Christians, that thinks the gospel are foolish. He's contrasting that wisdom, the wisdom of the world, with the true wisdom of God. And he says that the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. In other words, the wise of this world are not going to be able to get away with their crafty ways, which in the end are only rebellion against God. They think they are wiser than God. They think they can get away with things that God condemns. They think they have life figured out while ignoring their creator. And this acknowledgement that we don't know everything and have to trust God lines up with what Eliphaz was saying in his second sermon about not getting hot and bothered and angry about what God is doing. We need to accept what God has for us, trusting that he does everything right. It's the fool who thinks that he knows better than God how his life should be going. So what do you think of Eliphaz's third sermon? Like we've already witnessed, there are things that he says that we can appreciate, things that we can agree with, and a few things that are problematic or at least need to be carefully explained. So let's break it down. Of course, right, we ought to follow Eliphaz's advice in seeking God and committing our cause to him. 
That is a basic, logical conclusion from God being our creator. And we can and should agree that any such call for people to humble themselves before God and to trust him, that, that, that call is perfectly appropriate. Along the same lines, we need to be reminded that we are not as wise as God. We need to be humble and as part of that humility, recognize that the things that God does are unsearchable. We're never going to be able to fully understand, wrap our minds fully around what he is doing in this world and how everything fits into his perfect plan. We certainly must never expect to fully comprehend what he's doing so as to think we can judge what he's doing. It's also good to hear that Eliphaz seems to have an understanding of the gospel, which we were right to wonder about based on what he's been saying. We've wondered if he believes in justification by faith. We've wondered if he thinks the way to be on God's side has been good works. But now he is saying that sinners can seek God and commit their cause to God and expect to find blessing, which sounds at least closer to the idea of salvation by grace through faith. I would want to ask Eliphaz what he means by seeking God, what he means by committing one's cause to God, but hopefully he means seeking God for forgiveness and blessing and trusting that God will graciously work all things together for our good, despite how things appear. So it sounds like a call to faith, or at least wording that could be consistent with such a call. But as for any problems with what Eliphaz says, the problems are more about what he implies. It sounds like Eliphaz is saying that we cannot question God's will. We cannot attempt to understand what he is doing at all. And as we shall see, that is what Eliphaz and his other friends will insist over against Job's questioning of God. But there is a place for asking questions. There is a place for trying to understand God's ways as long as we humbly acknowledge we're not going to fully comprehend. And by comprehend, that means really to completely wrap your mind around something and fully understand it, every aspect of it. We're never going to fully comprehend God's ways. But humility and seeking understanding are not incompatible as long as we remember how insignificant we are over against God and are content with not having to know everything. There's also, again, a veiled accusation. This time it sounds like Eliphaz is suggesting that Job lost his wealth because he's a wicked schemer. He's one of these wily, crafty people of the world. And while Eliphaz has not straight out accused Job of such, he has explained how things work in the world. So if Job doesn't get his wealth restored, it must be because God knows Job's craftiness, even though everyone else doesn't. At least the idea is there that perhaps God has brought Job's wicked schemes to a quick end. Eliphaz is prepared to wait and see what happens because he's sure that the truth is going to come out in one way or another in short order. If Job has at all been gaining his wealth through ungodly ways, he got what was coming and actually doesn't deserve sympathy. But if Job has been godly in his business dwellings, then God is going to honor that by restoring his wealth. And hopefully you can recognize that this worldview is much too simplistic. God does know all about man's wicked schemes. He could put an end to them at any moment. But for his own purposes, he doesn't always do so. He doesn't always restore wealth to his people that is taken away unjustly. There are many things that happen in this life that are unjust and that are, that are not resolved by God in this life. 
just one example. When Uriah was murdered by King David, there was judgment that King David had to endure as a consequence, but there was no justice for Uriah in this life. That was impossible because he was dead. And the lesson to remember is that it is wrong to assume that we can know a person's relationship to God based on how things are going in that person's life at any given moment. God's beloved son was unjustly crucified. And we have no evidence that his murderers received judgment in this life other than what happened to Judas. We have reason to believe that actually many were blessed because Jesus prayed that the Father would forgive them. And then we come to the fourth word of Eliphaz, taking in verses 17 through 27 of chapter 5. The message of these verses is one that focuses on the idea of discipline and says that Job should take encouragement from the fact that God blesses those he disciplines. Eliphaz begins this portion of his speech with the main point, which is not to despise the discipline of God, because no matter what trial you are facing, he is going to deliver you from it. Job, you are currently under discipline, but don't despise the discipline. Verse 18, for he wounds, but he binds up, he shatters, but his hands heal. And then Eliphaz goes on to give a list of the numerous ways that God delivers. And he starts out with this common Hebrew expression involving the numbers six and seven. And by talking about being delivered from six troubles and then seven, he's using the number seven as a number of completeness. And he's saying that even if you experience the full spectrum of troubles, God will deliver you. Even when you are seemingly overwhelmed with the troubles of life, God is able to protect you so that no evil will touch you. And then Eliphaz gets into specific troubles that might be on a person's list, adding up to the six and seven. Famine and war often go together when a siege is laid against a city. There is the lash of the tongue that brings destruction through false accusations or through the words that stir up anger and violence. In verses 22 through 26, we have a description of life where everything is going well. There's no concern for famine because presumably you have all kinds of food stored up from these regular abundant harvests that have been taking place. There are no wild beasts prowling around to harm you or your livestock. In verse 23, there's this interesting expression of being in league with the stones of the field. Likely this is referring to how in that part of the country it was a necessity for successful farming to remove stones from fields. The main point seems to be that when a person is right with God, then everything, even the inanimate things of this earth, are in harmony with us toward a life of prosperity. Even stony fields produce abundant crops. Wild animals that normally might ravage crops or livestock stay away. Your family life, your work life, your personal life are all marked by peace. You have children and grandchildren. You live to a ripe old age, not withering away over the years, but entering death like a sheaf at harvest, dying in the prime of your maturity, able to look back on a life full of enjoyment and meaning. Eliphaz ends this fourth sermon in the fifth chapter of the book of Job by stating that what he is saying has been true, proven true by the we. Notice he says, behold, this we have searched out. He's joining himself with others who share his maturity and wisdom. He's saying what he is saying has been proven by investigation and experience. 
And Job will benefit if he will listen and accept what he says. So what do you think of this fourth sermon? Again, right, there's a mixture here. Um, He says a lot about discipline with which we can agree. What is said here about the person whom God reproves being blessed. This exhortation to not despise the discipline of the Almighty actually sounds a lot like what we find in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Where it says, and and, uh, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And uh, these words are uh, here of of Job are quoted. um, Well, these words I just quoted from Hebrews actually come from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Um, And yet the heart of what we find in Proverbs 3, as well as in Hebrews 12, about discipline seems to have come first here from Eliphaz in the book of Job. So Eliphaz is on the right track. He, he's right in reminding Job that the Lord's chastening and the discipline of his people by means of hard times is not something to despise. Eliphaz is right in teaching that God brings about good through discipline for his people. I'm not sure to what degree Eliphaz understands how the gospel relates to all of this, but the very possibility of us experiencing hardships as something other than wrathful judgment from God is due to the fact that Christ has taken our punishment upon himself. The only way trials can be transformed into a blessing for us is for them to no longer be about punishment for sin, and Christ has done that for us through his death on the cross. Eliphaz seems to have some sense of how a sinner can be right with God by grace and God not giving the sinner what he really deserves. But then Eliphaz seems to lose his way. For what does all of this earthly prosperity that Eliphaz goes on to highlight have to do with discipline? It it sounds like Eliphaz is falling into the very thinking that became the context for Job's test of faith. Remember how Satan accused Job of fearing God because of all of the rewards that God was giving him. And now Eliphaz seems to be encouraging Job to do that very thing. To fear God under the premise that God is going to see him through all of his hardships and he's going to bring him out on the other side into this world of great earthly prosperity. I wonder what Eliphaz means then by God's reproving and discipline of Job and other believers. It's possible that he considers all afflictions really to be discipline serving to correct and to spiritually instruct us as believers. And if that's the case, there's a sense in which he's correct. It is a normal and almost unavoidable phenomenon to feel a sense of guilt and to have a sense of our sinfulness, to find ourselves examining our hearts and lives for sin when we're going through a time of trial. And we should immediately repent of any sin that comes to mind. There's also the reality that trials instruct us. They, they do. They instruct us in that great and useful spiritual lesson of recognizing that we are weak, that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to lean on him for strength and support. So can all trials be said to be useful to us spiritually? Well, absolutely. But is this what is meant in Scripture by afflictions being disciplined? When I visit someone in the hospital, I'm certainly thinking about the desire that they have for healing, and I desire that that person 
be healed and will pray for it. But most of all, is concerned that a Christian not grow discouraged, especially as trials of the body make us to feel acutely how sinful and weak we are. It's easy for a Christian in those circumstances to lose sight of the gospel and the relationship of love that God has for them. And so they need to be reminded of Christ. They need to be reminded of his sacrifice for them. They need to understand that what's happening to them is not about God's wrath being poured out upon them for sin. And if hardships serve to humble us and lead us to repentance, if they remind us of our need for Christ and and, and his saving us from God's wrath, then we certainly ought not to despise the discipline of the Almighty. But that perspective is far different from my going to a hospital where a parishioner, a parishioner has gone through surgery and I begin to push him for an answer to what sin he committed leading to that surgery. When Eliphaz is recorded in verse 17, is talking about God's reproof. Hebrew word there means actually to judge a person as having committed a sin, as judging that a person needs rebuke, that this person needs correction because of obvious sin in his life. So that when Eliphaz goes on to talk about discipline and not despising that discipline, he's talking about the the judgment that God brings into a person's life in specific response to a sin or sins, which is also how we are to understand Hebrews 12. The passage is not talking about the discipleship, and I, I think that's the distinction here. Do, are all afflictions, do they, they, do they serve a function of discipleship? Absolutely. They help us. They help us in our walk with the Lord. But are afflictions discipline in the sense of punishment coming from God, chastening coming from God, that we would repent of a sin? The passage in Hebrews is not talking about that discipleship which takes place every day in the troubles that belong to each day, but Hebrews 12 is talking about painful discipline. That is in response to sin, the goal of of the person turning from that sin and uh, bearing the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so the goal, really, of discipline is repentance of obvious sin. And in the end, based on everything that Eliphaz says, we must not be prepared to let him off the hook as simply saying to Job, well, I believe that Job, your, your hardships are a God instructing you as he does all believers who every day need to be repenting of sin. Just hold on and God is going to reverse your sad circumstances. Now remember how Eliphaz has said in the, in the context, who that was innocent ever perished? Where were the upright cut off? Those who plow iniquity and so trouble reap the same. He also went on to say, affliction does not come from the dust, not, nor does a trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And so if things do not turn around very soon for Job, Eliphaz's theology tells him that Job has committed some heinous crime against God and or humanity. And then Job is definitely under discipline and needs to repent. But we know that is not true. Job does not need to repent of some specific sin. Yes, he needs to repent, as we all do each day. But the fact that he's already doing that is why he is said to be blameless and upright. Ronald Hanko, in his commentary, says this, While it is true as a general principle that sin and suffering go together, it does not mean that God, in afflicting someone, is punishing him for specific sins he has committed. We would not suffer if we were not sinners. 
And when our sin is finished, our suffering will be finished also. God, however, has other purposes in suffering than inflicting punishment for specific sins. Jesus establishes this in John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, in the case of the man born blind, when in answer to the question of the disciples, who did sin, this man or his parents? Jesus says, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Reynold Hinkle goes on to say, there are cases where suffering is the direct result of specific sins. AIDS is usually, though not always, the consequence of homosexual activity. Cirrhosis of the liver, the consequence of drunkenness. But these instances do not prove a general rule. No one may conclude that a person who has AIDS is guilty of homosexuality, not without further evidence. That person may have contracted the disease in the course of working in the hospital or as a laboratory technician. Misinterpreting God's providences is going beyond what God says in his word and drawing conclusions about oneself and others that are not warranted by what the word teaches. Job's friends do it when they conclude from God's providential dealing with Job that he was guilty of gross sin. Does the danger of misinterpreting God's providences mean we ought not to examine ourselves when trials come? We ought to do so, not only when we are suffering, but always. And we will always find sins that need to be brought to the throne of grace. But unless there is an unmistakable connection between our sins and our suffering, we are unwise to draw a connection, and others are wrong to do so also. End quote. So let us not be miserable comforters. Let us remind one another as fellow believers that there is always forgiveness for our sins in Jesus Christ. Let us remind each other that because of what Christ has done for us, our suffering, your suffering, cannot possibly be any kind of just punishment for your sin. It can't possibly be the experience of God's wrath or anger. Let us also take to heart the reality that not all suffering is discipline. If your suffering is discipline, then repentance is all that God expects. He's, he's not out to get you. He's not out to make your life miserable. He's not making you pay for what he's done. He's lovingly leading you to repentance so that he can forgive you, so that he can restore fellowship with you. And if it's not discipline, as in Job's case, it was not discipline. We're told that. We're told what, what, what happened there in, in the throne room of heaven when, when this, is, this is just simply a matter of testing Job's faith to prove Satan wrong, to prove that Job is not a man who fears God because of what God will give him because of all of these earthly blessings, but a man who fears God because of who God is in and of himself. He doesn't have to have a life of earthly prosperity to love God and to serve God. That's what the test is about. And if in your life there are these Afflictions that are not disciplined, just accept them and realize that they have a good purpose, even if it's not one that you understand. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has transformed our sufferings, has provided even in his own life many lessons on suffering of how even Righteous people can suffer unjustly, and yet all for a good purpose. 
We thank you, Father, for our Lord's suffering in our place, that we might be delivered from our sin, that we might be delivered from that wrathful judgment, that anger that we deserve. But we thank you for what he has done so that our sufferings are no longer a matter of wrath and punishment, but they serve a good purpose. Lord, we thank you for discipline when we need to turn from a specific sin. We thank you for afflictions that serve to disciple us by leading us closer to you and tests that serve the purpose of glorifying you, of manifesting your work in our lives. Lord, whatever the purpose is, may we accept your will, may we respond appropriately, trusting you, committing our cause to you. And uh, Father, we pray that we would live lives of joy as we realize that you are a loving God and in control of all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.